0: Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples.
1: Keep your Bible open if you would. I love you all, and I love getting to pay attention to Jesus as we make our way through the Bible together, as we make our way through Matthew's Gospel this year. It's a joy to be with you, and it's a joy to look at Jesus together. Last week in Matthew's Gospel, we heard these words from Jesus... In which Jesus stated a goal, quote, that you may know that the Son of Man has, and here's the phrase, authority to forgive sins. Jesus wants his people to know that he has authority to forgive sins. We talked about what the forgiveness of sins means to be set free from the burden of repayment with the intention of full reconciliation with God. But that statement of Jesus can kind of leave a question, a question that gets picked up in the next passage of Scripture that we're looking at together today that Megan just read for us. Because the guy he forgave in the last passage that we were looking at, he seemed like a relatively easy person to feel compassion for. He was a man with disabilities. And so the next question is, if Jesus has authority to forgive sins, here's the question, how does Jesus deal with really sinful people? And our passage today helps us answer that question. How does Jesus deal with really sinful people? This passage helps us answer that with kind of three movements. The first movement shows us something about Jesus' calling and something, and then something next about Jesus' hospitality and then something about Jesus' purpose. We begin with Jesus' calling of Matthew. You get what's going on here, right? We're reading the book of Matthew and we're reading about how Matthew began following Jesus. In other words, Matthew chapter 9 verse 9 is really interesting because this is Matthew's own testimony about how he became a follower of Jesus. Matthew is sharing with us his testimony, if you will. And when he tells his testimony, there are basically two components of his testimony about Jesus. Part one, here's who I was. And part two, here's what Jesus did. It's as simple as that. He starts with, here's who I was. And he describes himself by saying, essentially... I was a tax collector. We get that in chapter 9, verse 9, when we realize that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. The place where tax collectors work. And all of the people in Matthew's day, when they... When they hear Matthew describing his workplace and his line of work, pretty much everybody reading this gospel would have been like, boo, right? Tax collectors had a reputation for being the bad guys in a variety of ways. They had a reputation for being bad guys because of personal immorality that they had personally Contributed to. Tax collectors would routinely take bribes. Sometimes smaller bribes, sometimes very large bribes, and they would rip people off. They would practice extortion, sometimes even through violence carried out by the Roman soldiers that partnered with tax collectors. There was this kind of immorality that related to being a tax collector that everybody knew about. You know, like the, 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 The poor farmer who's trying to support his wife and his kids comes by Matthew's tax booth or comes by the tax booth of somebody like Matthew. And you can kind of picture how the scene unfolds. You know, the tax collector comes over and says, that'll be 200 coins, please. And the poor farmer says, last time it was only 150 and the tax collector looks over his shoulder with his eyebrow raised at the two Roman soldiers standing nearby who work with him. And he looks back at the poor farmer with his eyebrows still raised. And he says, did I say 200? I meant 250. But maybe we can make a deal. If you pay 150 to Caesar and 20 to me and 20 to each of these soldiers, we'll let you go by cheap today. There was personal immorality, extortion with threats of violence that were often carried out by people who worked in the tax collecting industry, if you will. And therefore they had a reputation for personal moral corruption. But beyond their reputation for being bad guys because of their personal moral corruption, they had a reputation for being bad guys because in almost everybody's eyes, they were on the wrong side of the political issues of the day. To be a tax collector meant working with and for the Roman Empire. To be a tax collector meant supporting Caesar and whatever immorality Caesar had devoted his life to. And tax collectors not only supported the empire through their loyalty, their unquestioning loyalty to the government, they also benefited financially as a result ...of their unwavering loyalty to the empire. Which leads to kind of a third reason that they were viewed as the bad guys... In addition to being viewed as the bad guys because of their personal moral corruption and in addition to being viewed as the bad guys because of their political associations, because of being on the wrong side of all the political issues in pretty much everybody's eyes, someone like Matthew had this added problem that he was also viewed as a traitor to his own people. Other Gospels tell us that Matthew sometimes goes by the name Matthew and sometimes by the name Levi. You know, like, it's not uncommon in those days for people to have two names. Even among the disciples, Simon, Peter, Thomas, Didymus, Judas called Iscariot. Matthew has two names, Matthew and Levi. Levi is about one of the most Jewish names that you can give your kids. And one of the things that it tells us is that it tells us that Matthew had Jewish parents who, when their son was born, named him after the father of the tribe of the Levites. After the father of the tribe of the priests, with something of a prayer that his life would be used like the lives of the Levites in a priestly way among his people. But how did Levi Matthew decide to live his life instead of living as a priest among the Jewish people. At some point, this Jewish guy ends up working for the colonialistic Roman Empire that was oppressing his own people and his own parents and his own cousins and his own village, his own family, his own tribe. If you know much European history, you know that in the 1940s, there were some, some Dutch folks who ended up collaborating with the Nazi regime. And they made some money off of their collaboration. They gained some status for a time. But you can imagine how deeply unpopular they were. For aligning themselves with the empire. That had come and crushed their people. In a similar way Levi Matthew. Is a traitor to his own people. In order to line his own pockets. And in order to make his own life comfortable. He's chosen to work with the people who are oppressing. The Jewish people. From whom he has come. Matthew begins his testimony telling us, I was a tax collector, which tells us a lot about him. And we just need to kind of clarify like, today there are a lot of jobs that you can carry out without implying much about your purity or corruption, right? A carpenter might be a very good dude or he might be a corrupt carpenter, but you don't just like say like by way of confession, I'm a carpenter today, right? Or a teacher might be a very good teacher or a corrupt teacher. A financial advisor might be a good financial advisor or a corrupt financial advisor, but, but we kind of get how this works maybe if someone comes up here and they're being baptized and And as he's being baptized, we say, can you share with us your testimony about how you came to know and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he says, I was a drug dealer selling cocaine. And we don't pause and say, now were you the good kind of drug dealer selling cocaine? Or were you the corrupt kind of drug dealer selling? Right? Like It just kind of goes without saying in some fields that if you're making a living by selling cocaine, there's kind of some corruption that inherently goes along with it. And in the same way, when Matthew begins his testimony by saying, when Jesus found me, I was working in a tax booth. He's saying that as a tax collector in the Roman Empire, there was some corruption that you all know inherently went along with the kind of work I was doing. When Matthew says I was a a tax collector, he's saying I was a sinner and everybody knew it. And now you start to see why Matthew's testimony has something to do with the question of how Jesus deals with really sinful people. Matthew's testimony begins with honesty about who he was apart from Christ, but the good news is that wasn't the end of Matthew's story, right? Who he was apart from Christ is not the end of his story, and let me just pause long enough to say, thank God, Christian, that who you were apart from Christ is not the end of your story either. Matthew's story begins with honesty about who he was apart from Christ, a sinner who would have been alienated and and hated by everybody around him. But the good news is that wasn't the end of his testimony. In fact, while Matthew was still a sinner, Christ saw him. And while Matthew was still a sinner, Christ loved him. And drew near to him. And called him to follow. And this moment is fascinating. I mean, there's like a whole crowd following along with Jesus. There's a whole crowd of people who are interested in listening to his every words. It seems like the town is gathering to hear Jesus. The whole town is coming out. Except for one person. The whole town is coming out to hear Jesus. Except for the tax collector named Matthew. But here's the thing. Jesus. The real Jesus. Really is like a good shepherd. Who would leave behind the 99 who want to hear the sermon. In order to seek out the one. And so while Jesus has 99 people crowding around to listen and to be healed. And while one person is off to the side not participating. Who does Jesus lock in on? Somehow his eyes zoom in. On this one man sitting in a tax booth. And he begins to walk toward him. And perhaps you can imagine. Some of the other disciples like yes. Jesus is going to stick it to the evil tax collector. He's going to tell the evil tax collector dude. What's up. You may remember you know like. This is one of the awkward things. And this passage doesn't bring it to our attention. But one of the awkward things about the, the band of people following Jesus is like, you know, Matthew is a tax collector, like as pro-government as you can be as a Jewish person in those days, and Simon's a zealot, as anti-government of a person as you can be in those days as a Jewish person. Matthew makes a living working at tax collecting booths. Simon used to be one of the people setting those things on fire and tipping them over if he could find the right opportunity to do so. And these two people, Jesus calls both of them together. So you got people who used to be zealots and they're learning what it means to follow Jesus. And you can kind of see them cheering Jesus on as Jesus gets closer and closer to the tax booth. Like, this is the moment where Jesus frees us up to just rage against government and taxes. But Jesus doesn't show up at the tax booth to rage against government and taxes. He shows up as the good shepherd, who steps away from the 99 who want to hear the sermon in order to seek out the one savior who needs to follow him. Who knows what kept Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth instead of walking out to Jesus. Maybe he saw all of the people gathered around Jesus, and he knew that he wouldn't really be welcome in that gathering. didn't really look like the kind of place that typically involves tax collectors. Maybe the love of money and the idol of success in work had too much of a grip on his heart. Maybe guilt and shame told him, told him as he tried to suppress the thoughts and tried to suppress the voices, maybe the guilt and shame hounded him saying that he had no business listening to a teacher like Jesus given how he'd been living his life. But now Jesus steps away from the 99 Who are ready to listen to the sermon. And Jesus is walking right up to the one sitting by himself. And he says to this tax collector, follow me. Which is a beautiful and profound invitation that functions kind of like a two-edged sword, right? On the one hand, these words, follow me, imply a deep criticism. Levi Matthew, if you're going to follow me, you can't keep living your life exactly as you've been living it apart from me. Levi Matthew, if you're going to follow me, there are going to have to be some significant changes in your life. Which is to say, Levi, Matthew, you can't keep living the way you're living. There's a criticism built into this call when Jesus says, follow me. And yet you feel it, don't you? You see it on the page. You hear it in the words. If you're a Christian, you've felt it in your heart. When Jesus says, follow me, there's. There's a call to repentance built into that. But there is also this profound what do we call it? This profound invitation. This profound acceptance. This profound welcome. This profoundly heart melting love that Jesus would say. To a sinful person like me, I want you to come and be mine. Jesus singles out Levi Matthew sitting in his tax booth. And he says to him with a call to repentance and with a loving invitation. Follow me. And that's the authoritative invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew stands up and he leaves his tax booth behind. (laughs) I don't know if he left a cash box full of money just sitting there wide open for anybody to come and repay themselves. But he gets up and he starts making some changes. And having heard this call to repentance, having heard this love like no other in the voice of Jesus Christ, he begins to follow. And so Matthew began a lifelong journey as a follower, a disciple of Jesus See, this is Matthew's testimony. I was a tax collector with everything that implies. But Jesus. But Jesus. But Jesus came and found me in my sins. And he loved me. And he invited me to become his. And so I gladly began following him. Matthew's testimony is simple but profound. He's honest about his background. And yet he's honest in telling us who the hero of his story is. It's Jesus. The one who loved him and came and found him. If you're a Christian, I wonder how you would tell your story of how Jesus found you. Most of us, of course, won't begin by saying I used to be a tax collector when Jesus came and found me. But maybe like me, you'll say I grew up going to church, but I was a hypocrite. A lot of head knowledge and not a lot of actual following of Jesus. And then when I was a teenager, one day while somebody was simply talking about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, because of His mercy, Jesus came and got a hold of my heart. And He called me to follow Him. And I began the journey of discipleship. I wonder how you would tell the story of how you began following Jesus. Which isn't really a story about you. It's a story that begins with here's who I was apart from Jesus. And here's how my hero named Jesus came and changed everything. In the first scene in today's passage we hear about Jesus' calling of Matthew. But then the scene changes. And the issue of how Jesus... How Jesus relates to really sinful people, it gets pressed even further. In the second scene, we read about Jesus' hospitality with sinners. In the scene change, we're no longer outside by Matthew's tax booth. Some amount of time has passed. And in the next scene, there's a table set with a feast, food and wine. Unless you're a Baptist, and then it was grape juice, but you know. (laughs) There's food and there's wine out here to eat and to drink. And here at this feast is Jesus, and there's Peter, and there's John. And next to him is a tax collector who has earned all the money to buy this food by ripping off oppressed people. And sitting next to that tax collector is another tax collector who knows all about the corruption in the governor's household, but as long as he keeps benefiting from it, he never wants to raise his voice about it. And right next to him is another person who is known to be a sinner. Not just like I've sinned, you've sinned. like He's, he's devoted and all-in committed to his sinful lifestyle choices. And then next to him is Thomas. Then next to him is Andrew. And you go around the room and you realize what a mixture of people are sitting here. And then around the edges of the room, there are some local religious leaders. Verse 11 tells us about them. It says when the Pharisees saw Jesus and his disciples eating at a table with other people, which implied a kind of relationship with them, a kind even of maybe fellowship with them to the eyes of the Pharisees, a kind of affirmation of them, a kind of endorsement of them to the eyes of the Pharisees these Pharisees, these religious leaders in Jewish, in, in Jewish culture in Jesus' day, these extra super holy people, these extra super holy people see what's going on with Jesus eating a meal with known sinners. And they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? You know how they live their lives. You know their political allegiances and their political loyalties. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? Why does your teacher eat with sinners? People whose lifestyle is clearly not in alignment with the teaching of God's words. And there's a little bit of an implied attitude to what they're asking It's a little bit more like, how dare your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I wonder why Matthew wanted the readers of his gospel to think about this scene. With Jesus and the disciples eating with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe in part it was because there will continue to be people in years to come who will say that if you're devoted to holiness, then that means staying away at all costs from people who are immoral. Maybe it's because Matthew knows that in the years to come there will be, there will continue to be people who will say that if you're devoted to righteousness then you will distance yourself from people who have the wrong political allegiances. Maybe it's because Matthew knows full well that in the years to come, there will continue to be people who say, if you're going to devote your life to God, that means staying away from people who live certain kinds of lifestyles. And the logic has something to it. The logic usually sounds something like this. Don't you realize that if you spend time with sinful people, it comes across as an affirmation. And you need to be very careful what you affirm about sinful people. Because very quickly it begins to appear that you're endorsing everything about their lifestyle. And we all know the truth of God's words, God does not endorse everything about their lifestyle. The logic has something to it, right? But how does Jesus relate to this logic? How does Jesus relate to this Pharisee logic, we might call it? Jesus sits down at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Probably about in the same way that Jesus has extended his welcome to you and me. Think for a moment about your own testimony. When Jesus called me, he certainly did not agree with all of my views. When Jesus called me, he certainly did not endorse everything from my past. When Jesus called me, He certainly did not endorse everything I was doing with my life. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ leaves the 99 to seek out the one who's gone astray. Jesus loves us even before we've got it all straight. In fact, in my case, here's where it gets even more complicated. Jesus continues to love me even though I continue to fail. And struggle Jesus continues to affirm me and welcome me and embrace me as his own, even though I still have things about my views that I'm sure he doesn't agree with. Jesus continues to love me and accept me. Jesus continues to enter into my life and say, Josh, follow me. With the full implication that following is going to imply some changes in life. And the full implication that follow me is an invitation into a fullness of welcome and acceptance and love. In the presence of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus loved me and accepted me even before I agreed with him about everything. And when we realize that that's how Jesus got a hold of my heart, it changes the way I interact with Pharisee logic a little bit, right? You see, maybe it is possible to love somebody without endorsing everything about their lifestyle in the process. Maybe it's possible to love somebody truly even while they continue to stumble along the way. Maybe one of the reasons Matthew is sharing this picture is to protect us from Pharisee logic, to protect us from the holier-than-thou impulse that says be careful who you eat with, because if you have a meal with somebody, people will think you're endorsing everything about their lifestyle." But maybe Matthew is also sharing this to give us a picture of what a missional lifestyle often looks like. You know what a missional lifestyle looks like? Very often it looks like having a meal with people. <laughs> Which is that relaxed environment where we just sit down and we start talking with food in front of us. As simple as that idea is, that idea was the model that Jesus often used in his life. And as simple as that model is, it's a model that Jesus continues to use to change lives today. Lives are still being changed around dinner tables in the patient practice of Christian hospitality. Maybe one testimony will help. How about a little testimony from Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. In her book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she describes herself in the middle of her life when she lived with a lot of values that most Christians simply don't agree with. In fact, as she would describe it, she was living her life devoted to a number of of sinful commitments in her life. And yet, a Christian family in her hometown invited her over for a meal. And she decided to go and join them in that meal. And she describes her experience of Christian hospitality like this. She says, going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities but nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest in the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and then eventually came face-to-face with Jesus on the glittering edge of my choice sexual sin. If you ask Rosaria Champagne-Butterfield to share her testimony... She will tell you quite honestly and openly that she was devoted in her life to a lesbian lifestyle and all kinds of things that she thought were right and good. And then Jesus came and found her. How? Sometimes Jesus gets people's hearts through visions. Sometimes people sometimes Jesus gets people's hearts through random little things that they hear or see. But more often than not, do you know how Jesus tracks people down today? Through the ministry of his body. Through people who take time to express and demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ in the patient practice of Christian hospitality. And So if you ask Rosaria Champagne Butterfield what her testimony is, she would say, I was living one way, and then Jesus came and found me at a dinner table with the Smith family. As I sat down and had a meal with them and then came back and had another meal with them and then came back and had all kinds of questions about the Bible and had another meal with them and came back and had all kinds of doubts and frustrations about how this didn't all seem to fit together and had another meal with them and came back with more questions and more doubts and more arguments and had another meal with them. And over the course of a couple years, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is calling her to himself. With all of the weight of follow me and the implied repentance that goes with that, but all of the beauty of follow me and the welcome and the invitation. And the acceptance by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that's implied in that as well. Listen, lives are changed around dinner tables in the patient practice of Christian hospitality. Which just leads me to ask the kind of simple question, how can you practice Christian hospitality in a particular way? How can you prepare to practice Christian hospitality in your life? There's a couple of mistakes that we sometimes make when we think about Christian hospitality. One of the mistakes that we can make when we think about the practice of Christian hospitality is we immediately just start thinking of of measuring how many people have invited me over lately. As opposed to thinking who is God calling me to invite over. Do you see how that can become a trap? That keeps us from genuinely loving other people. When we measure Christian hospitality. Not by who can I love. But by who has loved me recently. That's one of the mistakes that we can make. When it comes to practicing Christian hospitality. Another mistake that we can make with Christian hospitality at a very practical level, and I share this simply to free you up, is sometimes we can wrongly measure Christian hospitality by the quality of food that is served instead of by the quality of love that is shared. And so we get ourselves all worked up thinking, okay, the Lord just put on my mind somebody that I should invite over. But it's going to take me a whole month to prepare the menu and to repaint the dining room and to buy all the special things to make it look just perfect. And then like if the charcuterie board isn't working that day, we call it all off and say, nope, we're going to have to wait another month until you come over. But do you see how when we measure Christian hospitality by the quality of the food we serve rather than by the quality of love we share, what happens it holds us back. Now don't get me wrong, I love good food. You want to invite me over for good food, like I'm probably coming. And your neighbors probably are too. And your coworkers probably are too, right? We love good food and Jesus loves to sit down and eat food with people, but food is not the focus of Christian hospitality. Love is the centerpiece of Christian hospitality. Love for one another in the church and love for others in hospitality toward outsiders or even strangers to the faith. So let me ask you, with some degree of confidence that God wants to use this picture in his word on purpose for our good and for the good of others, who is the Holy Spirit maybe putting on your heart even right now? Like instead of plugging your ears and going la, 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 right? Who's the Holy Spirit kind of putting on your minds? Maybe college students or maybe people like me just find like, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know that I have time for the whole charcuterie board thing, but I can buy somebody a cup of coffee. Cool. With love in your heart, that cup of coffee can become a location of Christian ministry. So who is God calling you to invite into an experience of patient Christian hospitality? This passage gives us this picture of Jesus calling Matthew. It gives us this picture of Jesus doing hospitality with people who are known to be sinners And then, in this context, the Pharisees have their question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus has an answer. And we have to pay attention not only to Jesus' calling of Matthew and Jesus' hospitality with sinners. We need to pay attention and pay attention especially, maybe especially to Jesus' purpose in this world. Which is described in his response to the Pharisees' question in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. But when he heard what the Pharisees were asking, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Where does he start his answer? He starts with kind of what I might call an argument of common sense. Do you realize that this is how it works? If I'm the great physician, Jesus is saying, do you think that the great physician is going to spend his whole life at physicians' conferences? Or is a great physician filled with love going to spend his life among those who need to be healed? Those who feel sick and unwell. There's an argument here from common sense. If there's something that heals. If there's something that spreads life. It's not meant to be bottled up and hidden and kept among a precious few physicians at physicians conferences. It's meant to be spread among those who most need it. There's an argument from common sense here. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus is saying, you've identified the people I'm having meals with as spiritually sick. Well, I'm a physician, and who did you think I would be spending time with? But then he goes on with a second argument here as he describes his purpose in this world. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says to the Pharisees, who are like the ultimate Bible people, right? He says, he quotes a Bible verse to them. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he moves from a common sense argument to a Bible argument. And he says to these deeply biblical people. These people who say, I devote my life to the teaching of God's words. He says, go and learn what God's word itself teaches. And what does God's word itself teach? He pulls a carefully chosen quotation from Hosea chapter 6. Where the voice of the Lord says, I desire mercy and not just sacrifices. Sacrifices. Which is not in the voice of Hosea, nor in the voice of Jesus saying, Sorry, the Old Testament, when Moses wrote that stuff, it got it all wrong. The sacrifices were kind of a dumb idea. What Hosea was saying and what Jesus is saying is something far deeper than that. He's saying if you search the scriptures themselves, the scriptures that you claim to be following, you will realize that your obedience and all of your sacrifices are meaningless apart from a life of love. If you claim to carefully follow the scriptures, but you do not trust God, whose heart goes out to the poor and the hurting and the lost and the broken, then you've missed all the scriptures that you pretend to search. If you claim to carefully follow the scriptures, but you do not join God in rejoicing over one coin that was lost but is now found, then you don't actually know the scriptures. If you claim to carefully obey the Scriptures, but you don't join the Good Shepherd in rejoicing over the one lost sheep, now restored, then you don't know the Scriptures. If you claim to meticulously obey the Scriptures, but you do not join the Father in rejoicing over one wandering Son and extending an embrace to Him, then you don't really know God Or the scriptures that you claim to obey. Jesus begins with this common sense argument: I came not for people who think they're just fine. I came for those who know they're sick. Spiritually. He moves on to this argument from scripture. There's no point in saying that you meticulously obey the scriptures. If you're not by faith living a life of love. And then he moves on to an argument from knowing his own life mission, his own purpose for which the Lord had sent him into this world. And the Lord Jesus describes it like this. In fact, the Lord Jesus, who says, as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. He describes his life sending like this. Verse 13. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Until, in order to understand this passage, we need to realize that there's some sarcasm in it. Jesus is kind of sarcastically speaking to the Pharisees, saying, fine, you think you're righteous? Let's talk about that. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the context of the rest of the New Testament and the rest of Jesus' own teaching, we have to realize that Jesus has some profound critiques of the supposed righteousness of the Pharisees who he is critiquing, right? But inasmuch as the Pharisees will line up and say, Nope, I'm one of the righteous ones, Jesus says, Well, that's too bad because I came not for the righteous but for the sinners. Which is to say that until you admit the terminal sickness in your own heart, you will not rejoice in the healing of hearts that is found in the great physician. Until you see that you were once a lost sheep going astray and going your own way, you cannot grasp what it is to be found by the good shepherd who will scoop you up into his arms and personally restore you. Until you see that you were once a prodigal child, you cannot grasp what it is to see the father running toward you in grace. To embrace you, to forgive you, to welcome you home, and to bless you with honors far exceeding the shame that you've deserved. Until you see your sin, you cannot fully delight in His grace mercy, and kindness, and lavish love that Jesus Christ offers not to the righteous, but to sinners. This is what so many of the Pharisees missed. But even some of the Pharisees Even some of those who grew up thinking of themselves as pretty darn righteous, even some of the Pharisees would eventually get it. One of the extra super holy people, Pharisee guys named Saul, once hated the way of Jesus and the message of grace for all people. His testimony is I used to study the Bible. But my way of pursuing holiness led me into opposing Jesus Christ and harming others. But then Jesus came and found me in His love and grace and mercy. And a few years after that life-changing story in Saul's life who became known as Paul, this former extra-super-holy person said, quote, 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And sometimes we read that verse Or we hear what Jesus is saying when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we start to think about the weight and the gravity of our sin. And it just pulls us further and further down into despair, which is where the awareness of our own sin will leave us apart from Jesus Christ. But our testimony is not that's who, is not only that's who I used to be. Our testimonies which begin with that's who I used to be involve a but Jesus. And for Paul, the former Pharisee who said that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Seeing his sinfulness before Christ did not leave him wallowing in his despair. Rather, it led him to say, quote, but I received mercy. Christian, does your heart resonate with the good news of that? Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And it doesn't just leave Paul praising God for the opportunity to spread this mercy to others. It leaves it leaves Paul on his knees praising the God of grace To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, when we say that Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners is not an invitation to just wallow in how bad we are. It's certainly not an invitation to make up false stories about how bad we used to be. It's an invitation into simple honesty. Here's how I was living my life apart from Jesus. But Jesus... And because of him, my experience is mercy and grace and love and acceptance as I've begun following him to the praise of his glorious name forever and ever. Amen. And so we have this big question here How does Jesus deal with really sinful people? And Matthew's answer. Wow, how did that happen? Matthew's answer to the question of how does Jesus deal with really sinful people? Matthew's answer is this. Well, he called me because he came to call sinners. And for you and I today, As we hear this question, how does Jesus deal with really sinful people? I think we can respond, not with kind of this, just kind of morose sadness about sin. But with this depth of awareness of who we were apart from Jesus and this corresponding wonder of his great grace that he has lavished on us. And we can say, how does Jesus deal with really sinful people? Well, he came and he called me to follow him. Because he came to call sinners. Our testimony can be, brothers and sisters, your testimony can be, how does Jesus deal with really sinful people? Well, praise God, he called me because he came To call sinners to himself. At this time I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.